It's a great joy and privilege this morning to welcome to our pulpit Vaughan Roberts, who is the uh, rector of uh, St. Epps Church in Oxford and has a similar accent to me. <laughs> so you will be well trained. And uh, Vaughan, it's a joy to have you with us uh, this morning. Thank you, Josh, very much for your welcome. I first met Josh, I don't think he'd remember this, but uh, when he was a teenager at high school, and one of the very first talks I ever gave was at his uh, school, and I do remember meeting him then. That's a few years ago now. And uh, we work in very similar settings because uh, St. Ebb's Church is right in the heart of Oxford. It's an academic kind of centre, obviously, and that's one role I have. The other role is to be the director of what we call the Proclamation Trust, which is uh, designed to encourage and equip pastors mainly in the UK, to uh, preach the Bible. And in fact, that's why I'm here at Wheaton. We've been doing a a workshop for the Simeon Trust with the same aim. So thank you very much for your welcome. Let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. iPhones have uh, taken off in the UK and I normally don't like machines but I found this uh, particular machine very easy to use and I've been having fun downloading all sorts of different apps. And someone told me about a cardiograph. He said it's very simple, you just put your finger against a particular part of the phone And it'll tell you how many beats your heart goes at per minute. So I tried it, and it told me that my heart rate per minute is 48. So I thought, that's interesting. I don't know if that's good or bad. So I looked up on Wikipedia, and it told me that 60 to 90 is normal. And then I read these words. Conditioned athletes, let me just say that again. Conditioned athletes often have heart rates even below 60, it said. Well, I felt very pleased with myself and told a friend straight away, and he said, oh, that app is notoriously unreliable. (laughs) I'll leave it to your family members and your friends to ask you about the state of your physical heart. Of course, it matters very much. I want to ask from the Word of God today, how's your spiritual heart? What's your spiritual pulse like? And there's nowhere better to examine how we're doing spiritually, how our heart is doing spiritually, than to look to the Psalms. They've been described as a kind of spiritual cardiograph. And today we're looking at Psalm 27, where we see the heartbeat of a godly man. And the question is, does our heart beat like this? So let me read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Three marks of a healthy spiritual pulse. And the question, how does my heart rate compare to this? For a start, security. Verses 1 to 3. Very often, you know, at the start of a psalm, you get a little description telling us the circumstances in which the psalm was written. You don't get that here. You've just got to read between the lines and get a sense of the kind of circumstance that David was in. And clearly, it's a time of considerable pressure. We're not sure when. Maybe it was that terrible time in his life when God has anointed him, he knows he's going to be the king, but Saul remains as king and Saul is persecuting him. He's on the run. Or what no doubt would have been an even worse time in David's life when having been king for years, his own son, Absalom, rebels against him and David has to leave his capital city and flee from his own son. We're not sure. But clearly, as you read between the lines of this psalm, it is a period of considerable pressure. And yet David begins with a note of repeated, confident affirmation. The Lord is my light, my salvation, the stronghold of my life. And for those of us who are Christians, we can say the same. The Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. So I needn't quiver when confronted with the powers of evil or the hidden dangers of darkness. Christ is my light. I needn't quake at the prospect of death or judgment or the horrors of hell. Christ is my salvation. I needn't fear the unknown or any circumstance that in my imagination threatens to overwhelm me because Christ is far stronger than any rival power. He's in us and for us, and we are in him. Christ is my stronghold. I could not be more secure. What's your biggest fear? 
when you lie awake in the middle of the night and toss and turn, what fear is going around and around in your head and in your heart? Behind most of those fears will lurk an idol that will threaten to draw us away from Christ. Whenever you face a fear, you've got a choice. Will I look to the Lord Jesus Christ and place my ultimate confidence in him, or will I go to something else, something else that promises to deliver me? Idols promise great security, but always they end up making us less secure. For some, your greatest fear is failure. In a place like Oxford, full of academic bright, achieving people. That is a profound fear. There are many in the city where I live, and no doubt here too, whose identity and self-worth are bound up with achievements and success. They are very driven individuals. And as a result, they are vulnerable to overwork and stress and anxiety that could lead to a health breakdown and then underperforming. The irony is that the more we fear failure, the more likely it is we'll fail. If nothing else, because our standards are so high that we never quite meet them, we always feel we're not achieving what we should achieve. Well, the fear of loneliness, that's a profound fear. People all around us and amongst us are desperate to build relationships. And so if they're not married, they can be too picky Because nothing matters more than my relationship with this future husband or wife, and so I've got to find the best person, and no one's quite good enough. And they end up lonely because they can't find anyone. Or they're not picky enough because they're so desperate to be married that anyone will do, anyone who shows any kind of affection and love. And they make an unwise choice. Have a difficult marriage and a lonely marriage. Or they're over-demanding and emotionally controlling and manipulative in relationships because nothing matters more than my relationship with these friends or these family members. And we end up driving people away. They feel suffocated by us. And again, there's the irony. The more we fear loneliness, the more likely it is to happen. Or we fear we're unattractive. Read recently of a survey of 33,000 women in America, all between the age of 18 and 35. Three quarters of them thought that they were overweight, although only one quarter was medically overweight. 45% of those who were underweight felt that they were much too fat. We're obsessed with our body shape, and that is true of men as well as women. And the more we worry about it, the more we look at the magazines with those perfectly proportioned models, we convince ourselves we're ugly. And then we do something to try and fix a problem. We go on a diet. There's a Botox injection. Have surgery. We fix something and then we see something else that's not quite right. We're never satisfied. If I let the fear of failure or loneliness or ugliness drive me to the idols of success and popularity and beauty for security, my fears end up just increasing. Idols promise much, but they never deliver, except greater insecurity. Wise people find their security in God. That's what David does. In verses 2 and 3, he imagines the worst possible circumstance. 
surrounded by enemies, besieged by armies. By the way, that puts our fears in perspective, does it not? These were realistic fears for David, but he says, even if they come, my heart will not fear. End of verse 3, yet I will be confident. And he's not saying that because of the strength of his character, his great courage, but rather because his eye is fixed on the power and grace of God. We read together earlier that magnificent uh, closing to Romans chapter 8. And Paul says, if God before us, who can be against us? And then he imagined various circumstances and we're thinking, well, this could be against me and that could be against me. He lists a whole string of things and he lists them because they are realistic possibility for Christians. Do not assume that if we become Christian, life will always be easy. Here are some things that could happen. Hardship, says Paul, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, even martyrdom. But it says, even if these things come, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. These things may come, but God is sovereign and loving. He's allowed them. He will use them. Nothing can thwart his eternal loving purposes. Let's just pause for a moment and let that truth fill our hearts and calm our fears. We can face the future with humble confidence. It may be that some of our greatest fears are realized. Some of you long to be married, and you may never find Mr. or Miss Wright. Some of you long to have children, and that feeling is pronounced on a day like today, Mother's Day. You may never have children. Some of you are getting older and you're terrified because the kids have left home and the grandchildren are further away. At least the husband or wife is still here, but one day they might not be. They're getting older. By the day, you notice it. You're terrified of being left on your own. These things may happen. We may have a terrible accident that disfigures our looks completely. It may happen but we'll still have Christ. Whatever happens or does not happen, we will still have Christ. He will never let us go, not for eternity. John Chrysostom, great early Christian, was on trial for his life before the emperor. The emperor said, we'll banish you. Chrysostom said, you can't. The whole world is my father's house. So the emperor said, we'll execute you. You can't. My life is hid with Christ. Well, then we'll dispossess you of your estate. You can't. My treasure is in heaven. Well, then, we'll put you in solitary confinement. You can't. I have a friend from whom you can never separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. is the heartbeat of a godly man. Security. What's our spiritual pulse like? 
Second, satisfaction. We're moving on now to verses 4 to 6. If you could ask God for anything, one request, I wonder what, what it would be. And here is David, remember, in the midst of a very trying circumstance in his life. We could understand if he said, Father, please give me safety or peace or comfort. But look what he prays for, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He's not speaking literally, only the Levites, the priests, could live in the temple precincts, and David is from the line of Judah. He's speaking figuratively. He's saying, Father, the great longing of my heart is to enjoy deep, conscious communion with you. I just want to meditate on your qualities. I want to delight in you. Have you come to realize that absolutely nobody... And absolutely nothing is more beautiful than God. If so, that is an absolutely sure sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The unconverted person could find God awesome and frightening, but never beautiful. The unconverted person could get excited about what God might give him, forgiveness, future hope in heaven but will never be excited about God himself. That comes by the Spirit. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit inside us that we marvel at the wonder of God's qualities, these extraordinary combinations of qualities, his absolute holiness, moral perfection, and yet his mercy, his love to sinners who are far from perfect, His greatness as the sovereign creator who made everything. And yet his his condescension to care about little worms like you and me. His justice. He will judge the world with justice and truth. And yet his amazing love in sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to face the judgment that we deserve that we might be forgiven. It's at the cross that supremely we see the perfect character of God. The world looks at the cross and sees nothing but ugliness and folly. And the converted eyes by the Spirit look at the cross and they see beauty and wisdom. We're going to spend eternity praising God for his character. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. David is saying, I don't want to wait for heaven. I want to do that now. I want to marvel and delight in you. He's not simply longing for a deeper philosophical grasp of the attributes of God. He's not simply wanting a deeper understanding of what's in the Bible so he can tick another book off and say, I've cracked that book. Think of the the great prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesians who prayed that the eyes of their hearts might be opened. So yes, there is an intellectual element there. We need to understand what is here in the Bible. We need to use our minds. 
But it's more than simply intellectual understanding. It's also an appreciation that we might marvel at what we see of God. Is that our longing as we come to the Word of God? We come to listen to a sermon and go to a Bible study group, read the Bible for ourselves. Father, help me please to gaze upon your beauty. That takes time, of course. We're so busy, aren't we? We rush from one thing to the next. It takes time just to stop. And as we turn to a bit of the Bible, say, Lord, help me to see the beauty of your character in this passage. The whole Bible is a revelation of the character of God. You're feeling a bit dry spiritually at the moment. There's a great prayer to pray. Father, help me to gaze upon the beauty of your character. I want to suggest to you that that is the key to the Christian life. It's the key to the holy life. Perhaps you feel trapped. You're not making any progress. Pray that God would give you a deeper revelation of his beauty. It's all there in the heart. Because Proverbs says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So all we think and say and do flows out of the heart. A friend of mine has written this. He says, the root of all our behavior and all our emotions is the heart, what it trusts and what it treasures. Security, satisfaction. The heart is rather like a heat-seeking missile. It's looking all the time for something to latch onto. And if the heart is latched on to God and his beauty and the wonder of the gospel, then we'll live godly lives. Why is it we sin? Very, very rarely is it because we don't know what the right thing to do is. It's not a matter of knowledge, of knowing what the right thing to do is. We sin because our heart has latched onto something other than God for security and satisfaction. Some idol. And so it matters more to us at that given moment to satisfy our pleasure, our reputation, our friends, our success, our prosperity than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sin. And to deal with that, God does not come with a big stick pointing to a set of laws on a wall and then hitting us when we don't obey it. That was my impression of the Christian life before I was converted. God was just telling us how to live, and when we didn't live like that, he was telling us off. And that kind of moralism will never change the heart. All it will do is, for a brief time, change outward behavior because of a sense of, of guilt or a desire to be seen to be respectable. It will not lastingly change the way we live, certainly not inside. God does not just point us to some laws with a stick. He sent his son, who lived a perfect life for us, a life we have not lived. Who died a sacrificial death for us, a death that we deserve that he did not deserve, as he took upon himself the judgment we deserve. And he rose from the grave, triumphant. And he sent his spirit to help us understand his amazing love so that deep within we find we want to live like this. 
And the Holy Spirit is pointing us to the wonder of the character and beauty of God. And when we're latched on to him, we want to live to please him. That's the way to deal with sin in our life. A friend of mine uses an illustration about a child that's playing with a rusty knife, which is dangerous. It will harm it. And the parents shout at the child, put the knife down, but the child doesn't want to let it go. It clings on. And even if it does let it go, as soon as the parents' backs are turned, it picks it up again. Much better strategy is to offer the child some sweets or a toy that it's more interested in than the rusty knife. It immediately drops the knife and runs after the other thing. Or the teenager that's forever playing computer games and the parents despair. But then the teenager meets a girl, not, no longer interested in computer games. Its heart's latched onto something else. And if we find we're repeatedly going back to the same patterns of sinful thought and sinful behavior, we need to pray that God would help us find our satisfaction in Christ, delight in Him. And then the things of the earth grow strangely dim. So as we focus on him, that we're reminded of the absolute security we have. David says, verse 5, he'll hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. And verse 6, even in the midst of terrible circumstances when his enemies are all around him, he says, even then I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. It's unashamedly emotional language. He delights in God. I read an American writer recently who was reflecting on the Christian culture in which he was raised. He said, sometimes we went to camp as teenagers and we were moved by the grandeur of God. But it was accidental. We didn't aim at the enjoyment of God. He said, we knew we were supposed to believe the Bible and live godly lives, but we didn't know we were supposed to have hearts filled with pleasures forevermore. We didn't understand that those very pleasures empower godly living and that empty hearts, however full our heads might be, jeopardize godly living. Well, David aimed at the enjoyment of God, and so should we. Which is why my task in preaching is not simply to help those who listen to understand intellectually the truths I'm proclaiming, but as far as I'm able to help people appreciate and marvel and tremble where appropriate at the truth of the God who's proclaimed. Ultimately, that's something only God the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. So how's your spiritual pulse Security, satisfaction. There's a final theme. I'll be a bit brief on this. It's rather different. Struggle. That's verses 7 to 14. Have you noticed how quickly the pendulum swings in the Christian life? So you can be with the people of God on a Sunday, singing songs with hearts full of joy and a great sense of peace and confidence, and then Monday morning comes... And something happens at work and phew, the pendulum swung. And you're in the midst of trouble and turmoil. That's what's happened to David. The exultant praise of verse 6 has swung very quickly into the urgent prayer of verse 7. 
Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. He feels distant from God. He wonders whether God might turn a deaf ear to him. Verse 9, he feels guilty. Hide not your face from me, he pleads. He's worried that God might reject him altogether. Verse 12, he's pressurized. He's surrounded by these enemies. He's worried that God might hand him over to them, and he cries, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. Perhaps you long for security and satisfaction. Don't think that You just have to discover the key. There'll be some crisis, and then you'll move out of struggle into security and satisfaction. It's not like that. In the midst of finding security and satisfaction in Christ, there will be struggle. You can feel it now. Yes, I am secure in Christ. Yes, I am satisfied in Christ. And yet tomorrow morning comes, there's the struggle. There's the next point of temptation. In the midst of this struggle... I've got to decide again, where will I look to for security and satisfaction? Will I look to Christ or will I look to something else that promises to deliver me? The devil comes and says, do you realize the problem you're in is because you're, you're over tight in your Christian faith. If you just fit in with your friends, fit in with the colleagues at work, just compromise the little, then you'd find peace. Security, satisfaction. Perhaps in the midst of the struggle, we know that we need to meditate on God and his qualities so that the peace might return. But it seems so much easier just to medicate the pain and distress we feel by turning on the television and stopping thinking. Putting the headphones on and listening to some music. Go out on the golf course, go shopping. Don't think about it. Or perhaps to anesthetize the pain with potentially more damaging things. Instead of looking to Christ, turn to alcohol, drugs, pornography, an affair. If we look to such things, we'll find addictive, self-destructive patterns very quickly come in. David knew the temptation to turn from God. I love those words in verse 8. You've said, seek my face, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. I, I, I imagine those being said through gritted teeth. There he is in the circumstance, and he knows that God has said, look to me, seek my face. And David resolves, your face will I seek. And he remembers the truth. And he knows, verse 10, that even if his parents forsake him, God will not forsake him. And confidence begins to return in verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But even then there's struggle. There's a temptation to look away. And he's speaking to himself, I think, right at the end of the psalm. No, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. There's the heartbeat of a godly man, security, satisfaction, yes, even in the midst of struggle. And what we find in David is a pattern that was perfectly fulfilled in great David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to find a heartbeat of a godly man, look above all to him. 
absolute security in God. So there he was on trial for his life and Pilate said to him, don't you realize that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And very calmly the Lord Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Or satisfaction. His disciples urged him to eat. And he said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's where I find satisfaction in knowing him and pleasing him. And yes, struggle too. None more so than just before he died. He knew the path that he was called to tread. But Satan tempted him. And he had the choice to turn away, but he resolved to look to his father. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And because he went through to the cross, there we find forgiveness for hard hearts. I don't look to him for security as I should. I don't look to him for satisfaction as I should. In the midst of struggle, I often look in other directions. I need forgiveness. And I find forgiveness for my hard heart in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And that not only offers forgiveness for my hard heart, it gives inspiration for my cold heart. I need to keep looking back to him. When I'm tempted to look to other places, I look at him dying for me on the cross, and I know that's where I find security. That's where I find satisfaction. For some of you going through struggle right now, look to him. Others, are you feeling fine right now? The struggle will come. It might be tomorrow, it might be next week. It'll come. Keep looking to him. You've said, seek my face. And sometimes, yes, through gritty teeth, we need to say, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek you. Let's pray. Loving Father, forgive us that our hearts are so fickle and we often look to other things to find security and satisfaction. How we praise you for the death of the Lord Jesus, for absolute forgiveness for those who trust in him. May we find in him the security and satisfaction that can be found nowhere else. Help us to persevere, even in hard times, as we delight in your beauty. For your name's sake. Amen.